I've heard close friends and colleagues tell me, you know, I really want to fold in the kind of work that you do, but I'm confused by all the names and the titles and the language, which was kind of a big aha to me. And it inspired me to think, you know, there's so much common ground for us. People that do work in cognitive engineering and even, you know, UX research and, and UX design and development are really doing the same kind of cycles of understanding, analyzing the data, designing, evaluating, and, and wash, rinse, repeat that, that we do in, in a cognitive engineering cycle. And, and I think there's a lot of common ground, and I think working together is, is important. The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. We are excited today to welcome Cindy Dominguez. Cindy is a good friend of mine, and she is also a Principal Cognitive Engineer and Capability Lead for Human Machine Teaming at MITRE in Bedford, Massachusetts. She works to normalize the use of systems engineering processes that create effective partnerships between people and technology. She strives to build a strong community of MITRE human machine teaming practitioners. Before coming to MITRE in 2014, Cindy led numerous studies of applied cognitive work in the Air Force and for industry. She has conducted applied research in settings that include command and control from tactical to strategic, submarine operations, intelligence analysis, and healthcare. Recent work in collaboration with design professionals has emphasized combining cognitive engineering and design thinking methods. She earned a PhD from Wright State University in 1997. Her dissertation topic was decision-making in laparoscopic surgery. With an undergraduate degree in behavioral science from the U.S. Air Force Academy, Cindy served as an Air Force officer in behavioral science and acquisition roles for 20 years, retiring in 20, 2004 as a lieutenant colonel. She served on the Air Force's scientific advisory board from 2011 to 2015. Cindy, thanks for speaking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. So I wanted to start out and go back to the very beginning of your career. You did not start out as an NDM researcher. So I wondered if you would tell us a little bit about how you did get started and how you found your way to NDM. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got started in human factors, my undergraduate at the Air Force Academy, which was a behavioral science degree with a human factors emphasis. And I became a behavioral scientist in the Air Force um, and went back and forth between acquisition jobs and research laboratory jobs uh, for my whole 20 years. So really reflecting on this part on what does NDM mean and how did I get started in it, this history in the Air Force is a really important part of who I am and what I do and what I care about. So um, it, it's interesting. I, I don't necessarily see myself as a researcher, um, as a label. Uh, and, and just the other day, I was cleaning out some files and I ran across this summary of my 20-year Air Force career and it brought back this flood of memories and understanding. Um, but back to the, the NDM start, 
So in my assignment at Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio at the Armstrong Laboratory back in the early 90s, um, there was this awesome small group there. Um, Dr. Bill Storm was our fearless leader, and we had a chief scientist named Sam Shiflett. Sam was this slow-talking East Texas scientist who was absolutely brilliant at pulling together funding sources to create this cohesive empire for real-world experimentation and large-scale simulation. And he created this AWAC simulation environment. Um, it was quite rich and authentic. Marie Gomes was one of my academy classmates. She was at Wright-Patterson in the research lab, and she had a small business innovative research effort with Klein Associates. So Laura, you probably remember this. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah, you were on that project. That was you and, and, and Dave Klinger came down to Brooks as a part of that team, and you were experimenting to prove that cognitive engineering applied to a complex technology redesign would yield measurable improvements. And so there was, there was a lot of background to how that was going to be accomplished in the simulation environment. Um, but my first exposure really to NDM was that project. Um, I went up to Dayton as, as part of this effort to the Klein Associates offices to participate in this team meeting. And it was a, a joint, there was the Klein team, there was a few others, I think Glenn Edelman, Steve Andrioli, and Marie. Um, and I just remembered that meeting viscerally. It, it was such a hoot. Um, I loved the dynamics of the team. I loved how they brainstormed on the whiteboard, these key concepts that they had learned from the interviews of AWACS weapons directors out of Oklahoma City. Um, and talking through what approach they wanted to use with the research to build on the user engagement. My job was kind of as a concierge at the lab to the visiting research team to make sure you guys had what you needed to do the work. Um, so you, Laura and Dave came down for the planning and the experimentation and I, I felt drawn into it. I was really enamored with it. I thought it was cool, it was impactful. And I started wondering, you know, what is cognitive engineering? You know, why does it matter? How, how is it different from human factors? Um, and it really influenced me to see the power of methods for understanding cognitive work and decision-making. Nice. That was that was a great study. I mean, there were so many good elements. We, we had interviews with uh, really experienced weapons directors and that amazing simulation facility. Yeah, that, that was a, a great, a great way to get started in NDM. I, I, that was that was really my first big project, too. So that, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, we were both. Yeah. We were both very young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. my first visit to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so we, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to also say that though, moving up to Dayton from there in the early to mid nineties and, and working on my PhD at Wright State through Air Force Institute of Technology and later at AFRL, that really helped me to be a part of this NDM community, you know, access to people, they build relationships through normal um, lunchtime brown bags and uh, Gary Klein teaching a class in cognitive task analysis at Wright State while I was there. So 
there was this whole confluence of things that kept drawing me in. It was really cool. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say one of the um, neat things about your career is you, as you have moved back and forth from um, um, research to acquisition, you stayed connected with the NDM community through all the various roles you've had. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's, yeah, that's, I think a little bit unusual and, and, um, nice that you've been able to stay connected despite, uh, different roles over time. I agree. I remember, um, taking a headquarters job, um, at the Air Force Materiel Command and feeling, wow, where's my connection to this work that I care about? And so I think that was the time that I ran for the chair of the cognitive engineering and decision-making group. Nice, nice. So when you think back over your career, what barriers have been more difficult to overcome than you expected? I think it's such an interesting question. Um, But one of the things that stands out to me is the gap, the valley of death between research and application. Um, and, And I think it's because I've seen this amazing work not have the eventual impact and transition that it should have. And so I'm especially keen on this problem and how to overcome it. I've, I've thought about this a lot. Many of the people working in this space did a lot of small business innovative research efforts and, and such amazing work done in those areas. And um, I think going back and forth into the acquisition worlds made me want to apply that great work systematically in the acquisition processes that I was a part of and saw. Um, So uh, I think that's important. So what are some of your thoughts about that valley of death and how to span it? (laughs) Yeah, I do have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I think that... What I've seen is that people in both research labs in the government and in acquisition organizations, they might have the drive or the desire to fold this kind of work in, um, but they don't necessarily understand it. And they don't have the resources at their fingertips to show them how to fold it in. And so as I thought about this over time, and and this has sort of been heightened in my time at MITRE now since 2014, how how can we create resources that coalesce material um, so that people don't have to read all the research papers to actually leverage this wealth of research that's been done, Um, but they can benefit from... um, if we can put resources together that actually go all the way from mining literature to pulling out guidance and and user stories and you know draft generic requirements, things that can help them. Um, that's what we've tried to do in the human machine teaming area. I know I've shared some of this with you, Laura, um, creating the systems engineering guide for human machine teaming and being able to convey in a very clear but authentic and evidence-based way um, what people should be looking at. What are the major issues that have been faced with 
um, in technology development? Why have people traditionally either rejected technology or had um, had it fail in spectacular ways? So I'm trying to capture that and, and make it available um, on our external website um, and in as many ways as possible is, is something that I care a lot about. Yeah, that it's it's such important work, as you say, to help um, give people some of the the kind of foundation I, foundational ideas and identify some of the barriers so they don't have to find them on their own. They can already be thinking about how to avoid them or overcome them. Right. So I think I think the work you're doing is a really really important contribution here. Thanks so much. Yeah. So Cindy, you've you've been in kind of privileged positions to sort of hear a lot of the other side of the argument, if you will, um, you know, where you might have, uh, where you or maybe, you know, researchers that you were supporting were offering a perspective, offering tools, uh, and yet there was some pushback uh, or, you know, things didn't move into the acquisition cycle. So can you give us any insights into what, I don't want to say the other side, but, uh, you know, what kind of pushback have you heard? Uh, and did it make sense to you uh, in the sense of, you know, there are larger issues at play here uh, that that maybe the researchers don't quite understand? So I wonder if you can share that perspective. Well, that is a that is a big question, isn't it? Um, I, I think in the places that I've been, um, I often see a focus on technology and a desire to make that technology acceptable and meaningful and, you know, have mission value, but um, the difficulty in understanding how to do that, as I said. Um, and so I, I think, honestly, part of it is trying to cut across the big tent of identities that we have within the fields of not just cognitive engineering, um, decision-making practitioners, but you know, we, have, we have many different names and people identify with human-centered engineering and, and so on. And I've heard close friends and colleagues tell me, you know, I really wanna fold in the kind of work that you do, but I'm confused by all the names and the, the, the titles and the language. Um, which was kind of a big aha to me. And it inspired me to think, you know, there's so much common ground across people that do work in uh, cognitive engineering and even, you know, UX research and, and UX design and development are, are really doing the same kind of cycles of understanding, um, analyzing the data, um, designing, evaluating, and, and wash, rinse, repeat that, that we do in, in a cognitive engineering cycle. And, and I think there's a lot of common ground, and I think working together is, is important. Um, and, and so maybe cutting through the language with clear pathfinders that show this is how we could help this technology modernization program by you know, showing examples. We built this simple cognitive workflow. We, um, through our user research, um, added onto it these user stories and um, linked those user stories to the traceable 
snippets from the uh, interviews that we did. And um, this is how we mapped it onto a human machine teaming framework to try to avoid the kinds of issues that have cropped up in the past. So I think, I think pathfinders are incredibly powerful to show how we can impact acquisition systems. So I've tried to, to work on those kinds of things and, and promote them shamelessly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, f I feel like sometimes we're in this pushing mode uh, and, and where we've been more successful uh, even than sort of trying to convince people is when you open up that tent and people actually come in. Um, I'm thinking of our uh, ACUS work where we had the technology folks, we had the program manager, we had the folks doing the interface design all coming to our interviews. And so they they would often be the ones who offered those user stories because they heard them during the interview. So, it, you know, it feels like that's another potential strategy where you can make it work is just to get them in the tent when the action's actually happening. Absolutely. And, you know, that ACUS project, um, I was thinking about that recently. You and I worked together on that um, uh, autonomous aerial combat utility system Um that team of people, um, Aurora Flight Sciences led that team, and they had a, a great group in the room, um, and uh, the multidisciplinary nature of that, um, the work that we did. And if you remember, we folded in our designer, Rob Strauss, who took what we found in our, in our user research and created these amazing storyboards and pictures that we could then do these cognitive wall walks with. And, um, and I remember one meeting in particular where um, some of the, the, the government team members were, were walking along the, the wall, looking at all of the posted storyboards that we had and, and, and being really amazed at how the information was portrayed, very complex information in a very simple way. Um, so yeah. I, I totally agree that having having team members come to the interviews and all sit in and listen is is powerful, but also that that whole team interaction of everyone being motivated because the team succeeds when there's great, meaningful technology that really increases the mission value. Nice. So, Cindy, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask about some of the people who have influenced you over the years. Can, can you think of three people who have really influenced your approach? Yeah, definitely. So I, I think John Flack influenced me a ton, um, my PhD advisor at Wright State. Uh, and I know you've interviewed him on this series. He's such a deep thinker. And all this exposure to the ecological psychology community that he brought forth and brought alive um, was really influential on me. But more than that, he had this stance of being a door opener, both in inspiring and enabling me to do this unorthodox dissertation on you know, a field study on decision-making and laparoscopic surgery. Um, but even more than that, John would introduce his, his lab, his students, to all his friends. And he had this incredible network of people that um, he would bring to the lab to interact with us um, from Peter Hancock 
to Kim Vicente, to um, these great people from Europe um, and, and from all over, because he liked to socialize by talking about his ideas. And he sort of wove together this set of friends with the academic experience so that when people came out of his lab, they had this, um, this network and this exposure that was just incredible. So I, I really appreciate all of the doors that John opened in thinking and in relationships. And I, I would say definitely Gary Klein had a huge influence on me. I, I really owe a lot to him. As, as a member of my qualifying exam and my dissertation committees and in the long-term collaborations following that, I really admire how he thinks, how he continues to make a splash again and again with, with his contributions. You know, one example of that was I was really excited to be on this project to teach a week-long workshop in Singapore with him. And we planned this out very carefully. It, it was a workshop, um, a week-long workshop on team sense-making in Singapore with a government organization there. And then Rob Hutton was involved as a, a project lead, helping us plan it and, um, and lay it out. But sort of watching Gary at work in Singapore interact with people, um, not just in all of the things I learned about how to teach a long-term workshop and really engage with people, facilitate the discussions and the learning and so on. But it seems that every evening he would have a dinner set up with some group of people in Singapore who wanted to interact with him. And observing those conversations was, was really influential on me. Um, and I, uh, I appreciated it a lot. So it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. And, um, and I, I just admire how he continues to march on. I don't know if I can think of a third one. Um, I, I feel like I've had so many great mentors and leaders over the years, um, both civilian and military. And uh, um, I, I wouldn't, it'd be hard to pinpoint anyone additionally. Well, those are two pretty uh, amazing people. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 they're. yeah. Okay. So this is um, actually, I, I want to ask about what is the most exciting thing you're working on right now? Oh, um, well, so you mentioned earlier that I'm working on a broad set of human machine teaming capabilities and initiatives. Um, I'm really excited to be building something that I'm hoping will have legs long after I've retired, um, developing the kinds of resources that we talked about to bridge the gaps, advocating for those methods and their impact, building relationships across all of these amazing people at, at MITRE. You know, MITRE is a solving problems for a safer world is the, the mission. And it's, it's such a large mission and so important and people are passionate about it there and I've loved building relationships with people across so many different domains but also helping to I'm really excited about helping to hire people and mentor people all of them 
who bring their own energy and perspective to the table as, as you bring them in and, and start working in these areas and, and on these projects. So specifically right now, I'm working to weave these cognitive engineering-based human-machine teaming principles into a team that's using scaled agile framework to develop and implement AI for a army course of action wargaming problem set. And so I've learned a ton about this space. Wargaming in general is fascinating. It's such a application of drawing out decisions and fleshing through them, you know, what, what do they mean in context? Um, and, and so just my eyes have been opened a lot about the entire realm of wargaming and how the army does it during planning at a high level, at a division level, is something I've never been exposed to before. So I'm really excited about the, the small but multidisciplinary team that I'm involved with on that. And there's some great people there. There's great cohesion there. They're working to jointly create and carry out a process where user engagement and analysis can really inform what should AI do? What, what functionality should it strive for? And then once our, our great development folks prototype some of these concepts to assess those capabilities. And, and we have a, an, a team of subject matter experts uh, working with us who are on the team you know, on, a, on a daily, weekly basis. And that's, that's pretty powerful and interesting as well. So I've, I've been enjoying that. So I want to circle back. I love that your initial response was really what you're excited about is setting the stage for the next generation. So creating resources, hiring people, mentoring people, but helping people um, just carry this work forward. Um, so that's that's a cool response about one of the things you're most excited about now. I love that. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the other thing... Um, this issue of what functionality should AI strive for is huge, right? Across all kinds of domains. Um, and so you're looking at it in the context of army war gaming. Um, so does that mean a AI that supports war gaming or, um, or using war gaming to explore how AI could be used in operational settings or both? It is about using AI to support wargaming. And at, at, the, at a division level in the army, the planners, you know, I, I think there's, you've probably seen pictures of uh, I don't know, 15 to 20 people around a sandbox, <laughs> all with different capabilities. And, a, and a, a lead planner is walking them through this course of action that someone defined and anticipating with all of the different units involved, how to how to minimize risk, how to maximize unit capability and effectiveness, and this um, this analysis of a course of action, um, looking at different ways that AI can support that because it's such a complex problem. Um, there's so many different elements and pieces to it. It's kind of uh, really opened my eyes to the challenges associated with that planning. And, um, and, and so the team has set their stage up, set their ladder up against the wall of 
um, how to how to support that in this environment that's now very time constrained. It's very manual. It's largely subjective, and, and it's complex. And and the speed and complexity of the battle space is only expected to increase. Sure. Wow. So that that's very cool. And so these AI tools that are going to help support analysis of courses of action is the idea that they would then extend to the real world as well beyond wargaming? Well, I would say the team that I'm working on is is open to impacts in the execution phase, um, which I think is what you're talking about, the real-time action. But, yeah. you know, really trying to start with a focused element of, of what can we affect and and then sort of a, a crawl, walk, run kind of a approach, you know, what what kinds of AI might support that? And, and you know, there are many, many different kinds. You know, machine learning gets, gets a lot of press, but there are many other different kinds of AI and, and we're applying a different kind of an approach um, currently, but, but looking to expand it and in and, and a proof of concept type of a approach. Yeah, it, it's interesting, and I, I think it's uh, it's good to dive into the real space and the team in a way that that brings to light everybody's contributions and equities. And I, I think one of the things that I heard recently in an interview from a senior leader was, if you don't organize to do something, you won't do it. And so. Mm. I've been thinking about this. How do we organize teams of, of cognitive engineers, um, technologists, program managers, uh, all of the different people that make up a team? How do you organize their effort and the process of how they work together to make sure that there is impact and contribution across these very complex problems and what they're trying to attack? And so um, some of the, the folks on the team have been within the Scaled Agile framework developing um, processes and, and really um, embracing, let's, let's weave this human machine teaming element in, let's have a user engagement team that, that contributes in a systematic way, let's think about what that should look like, let's tweak it, let's refine it, let's you know, continually try to do better at it, which is good. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. The process matters a lot. Yeah. 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 So you seem like the perfect person for that project, Cindy, because you, in my experience in working with you, you are very much a team builder. Thinking back to our friends, the intelligence community, you know, birds of a feather type meetings where we pull together a lot of, a lot of different interests and perspectives, but mainly focused on how could we help intelligence analysis. And, you know, we just talked about the, the team on the ACUS project, which was a lot of different kinds of capabilities, like you said. So I, I'm also hearing, as you've been talking, all these different domains you've worked in and all these different contexts and settings that you've worked in. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of us are in the same organization for, <laughs> for years on end. And yet we've already heard, I don't know, 12 or 15 organizations that you've worked in. So I'm kind of curious is, do you have a particular way that you go into, um, you know, new either projects or organizations and, and start this, um, you know, this team building uh, approach? Do you have particular ways that you think about uh, how to organize your own teams? Oh, that's a great question. I think 
that listening is important. I think that many times we all get convinced and in the same way that I know how to do something. I, I have the experience and expertise to, to carry out a task. But again and again, I realize I don't know the whole picture or there's things that I don't know and there's uh, other ways of applying things. So I do try to lead very inclusively on the small teams that have led. And I do believe in synthesis across disciplines and, and the importance of that. So I think building relationships across teams and within teams is important. But one of the things that, that someone reflected back at me caused me to pause as well. Um, I, I was talking with somebody that I was leading or someone that was in my group, um, sort of a, the smallest level of supervision at our company um, years ago and sitting with them in a cafeteria and, and talking about cognitive engineering. And, and the reflection back at me was like, you're really passionate about this. You know, I can tell you care about it and it makes me want to care about it. And so I think that um, it just made me realize, wow, if you speak with passion about something, um, it does have an effect and it, it is able to um, bring people along. So um, I guess over the years, I've learned to anticipate all of the arguments to including this kind of work on a project and have a ready answer and to speak really as passionately as I can and as confidently as I can about the benefits and, and specific impacts of work. And, and people, I find, are very responsive to that. Have you found any particular uh, areas or, I don't want to say people in particular, but any particular areas that were really just sort of struggle to get traction in promoting the approaches that you're interested in? Um, yeah. I I do feel sometimes like my my career has yielded many different struggles to get traction. And I think that uh, just the general spread and awareness is important. I feel like around 2014 when I was I had finished I'd been at um, ARA for like 10 years. Um, post Air Force in the same company, you know, I started thinking about uh, gaining traction in general as a field, as a, as a cognitive engineer, and what did I care about and what, what kind of impact should we be having? And, and I think it was partly because I wasn't seeing the kinds of requests for proposals out there to really dive into that felt were amenable to using this kind of work. Yeah, I think that's why I kind of stepped back and, and started thinking about what kind of a perch could I have that would enable um, stronger application and a stronger pull from the government side. Um, just sort of an aha, you know, if the government doesn't require a contractor or researcher to do something, but specifically on building systems, um, you know, building into your systems, the process and the requirements. If the government doesn't ask for it, then then it won't be done by the contractor. And, and 
started thinking about trying to go to that back. You know, I really love being on the side of being a trusted advisor to the government, which MITRE is, um, you know, as a not-for-profit and that kind of a role, it felt very comfortable for me to, to try to affect change in that way. Yeah, that's an interesting point about those RFPs sort of <laughs> not being there anymore. Uh, that, that seems to have continued, but, um, but yeah, I just, you know, Early on, even in my whole NDM endeavor, it seemed like we could write 12 SBIRs per cycle because there was that much talk about what was what, what everybody was interested in. And these days, it's, you know, it's a lot harder to find a topic to write to. So I have kind of a fun question next, Cindy. I want you to imagine you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM. On pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask them? Oh no, on pain of death. <laughs> um... Yeah, this is serious stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's interesting. You know, I I really have learned to take a big tent approach. Um, and there are so many talents to bring to these rich problem sets we're facing today. I I do have a criteria before I want to go work on a project, which is will the larger ecosystem of the project support user-facing research? And if so, I strap it on and figure out how and try to bring the talents we have to bear. And and it's funny because the people around me in this ecosystem, amazing people, but they're, you know, they're under a banner of social behavioral scientists or UX or human-centered engineering or just really fabulous designers. Um, and so I think um, all of them have so much to bring to decision support research and the kinds of projects that are facing our, our world today. And so I, if I had to be on pain of death, you know, you might kill me now because <laughs> <laughs> I might not. Um, but I, I do think, you know, the biggest sin is to just not do any user-facing research and um, make assumptions on reading things. This is the problem. I'm going to address this problem because I've read about it without really understanding the context, of course. I think that's a great answer. I love it. So, I mean, from where you sit, it, it, it seems like what really... A decision you have to make is which projects to get involved in. Like that happens, uh, and you are uh, are faced with that. And and so your criteria is 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 there going to be user facing research here? And if not, it's probably not going to have the kind of impact you'd like to. Right. That's is that true? Fair restatement. It is. It is. I will say that also at Mitre, there's a. Um, internal research program, the MITRE Innovation Program, that literally anyone in the company can develop an idea and um, submit it, and it can compete on this annual basis for internal research funding in, in, a, in a range of different categories. And so that's, that's how we developed and published this Human Machine Teaming Systems Engineering Guide, how we were able to, you know, spend 18 months working on that, um, digging into it and producing it. 
and so anytime you have a great idea that you sort of the stars align and you have this big aha moment, you can propose that, uh, get it into the cycle. And, you know, once you've, you know, you, you don't always get funded, but, but uh, I think there's a lot of really good traction for great ideas. And so that's kind of another way to, to choose your own path um, that I, I find wonderful where I'm at. Yeah. So I guess I didn't realize that this um, was work that you conceived of right from the start. Yeah. You had this idea. Nice. This Very idea nice. of bridging the gap between people who need to use all of the evidence in the research and people who had done all that research. And how wonderful to work for an organization that um, can support good ideas. That's that's. Okay. Amen. I agree. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. The answer to this next question also has to surprise Laura. So this might be a tough one for you to answer, but to tell us one thing about you that the audience probably doesn't know. Oh, I really love to be in the woods. I like to go out and walk or hike. Um, and I think it just feeds my soul. I think it's a, it's a world in which we need to find things that can help us to think critically and be in the world. And that's something that I love to do. Did I surprise you, Laura? Um, I'm not completely surprised by that now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems consistent with this Cindy I know, yes. <laughs> What's next? What are you excited about next? Is there anything we haven't talked about that you're thinking, this is where I want to go next if I can find my way to get there? Yeah. Intelligent assistant design patterns. It seems for a long time people have been working on associate technology. For example, back in the 90s, I remember being at Air Force Research Lab and there was this big pilots associate program. I think it was ahead of its time. Um, but today... It seems to me a way to focus what we know about how technology can be a good teammate to a person to try to create software that that leverages these assistance that we have on our phones and in our living rooms that, that people use for this ever-expanding set of simple tasks. Are there any doors that we can open within the sort of narrow AI? Um, that we have to try to take assistant technology and develop it for sharp end of the spear people, ways that, that matter. I think um, at the risk of sounding too enamored by Hollywood, uh, the, the Marvel series has this Jarvis character. And I realized through doing some user engagements with folks about ideation and design of intelligent assistants that that many people have been influenced by these and think about that as a, a metaphor. Um, how can we create software that points us where we need to point, where we need to um, be looking, um, helping us direct our attention, help us to see what might be coming up next, um, help us coordinate with software that, that builds upon what we already have and what we already know. And so I'm, I'm 
not really trying to hand wave about the AI capability here. I know technology won't solve everything. Um, we need to understand the limitations, but I think there's some real traction that's possible to help make progress in, in decision support and just in support of cognitive work at the sharp end of the sphere by coming up with patterns that matter, say for command and control or other areas that, that can be pathfinders for, for ways to use technology that's, that's highly supportive of people. So what's an example of an assistant today that, that you think is useful and you'd like to see expanded, generalized, grow? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to say it too loud because my phone will answer, but, you know, Siri. Hey, Siri. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, uh, hey, Alexa. Um, you know, those, those voice-based things, I think, in a lot of sharp-end environments might not translate very well. I think there's a lot of richness in the, in the visual and maybe other modalities that can help. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, I think voice-based technology is wonderful and can be you know, highly effective, but a lot of the environments that people are working in are highly noisy and might be challenging to translate. But, but there are seeds there. There's, there's capability to build upon. Well, okay. So I think I have one last question here. If you could instantly achieve expertise in anything, what would it be? <laughs> At one time, um, uh, surgery, doing all the work I did on decision-making in surgery. I was very enamored with that. I, I think right now, um, with a little more experience under my belt, I'd love to be able to absorb and understand at an expert level all the different aspects of cognitive science that I don't have time to dig into. Elements of how does the brain work and how do people function in, in collaborative societies that there's so much out there. There's so much pro proliferation of research that uh, I would love to just install that in my brain. I think you're the first person that answered that question who actually referred to a, a domain or area that they already work in. Everybody else was coming <laughs> up with this left field stuff that had nothing to do with any of this stuff. So kudos to you for actually wanting to become an expert in, in a domain of interest. Uh, sure. Oh, well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for speaking with us today, Cindy. It's been such a pleasure. So on that note, thank you for joining us. For the NDM Podcast, I'm Laura Melatello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Thank you.